Let's just have a moment of quiet and I'll say a short prayer. Lord, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you, today and every day. Amen. Well, good morning, and it's good to be with you this morning and to be able to share some reflections on the passage that we just heard from Paul's second letter to Timothy. But before we turn to that, can I first of all just thank you on behalf of Nigel and myself for the incredibly warm welcome that we've received here at Camborne, um, both prior to my sort of official appointment and since we moved into Monk Drive last Tuesday. We feel greatly blessed already by God in our new home and in our new community, and we look forward to growing with you in all sorts of exciting ways over the next few months and years. And it's equally good to be able to uh, continue the series that you've already started and been following based on Paul's words of wisdom and encouragement to Timothy at the church he was leading in Ephesus. And I've put up a, a very ancient image of Paul on the left-hand side and Timothy on the right-hand side. And I love this relational quality to this picture. They're looking at one another, their hands are outstretched towards one another, and in the space between them hangs the words that Paul so wanted to communicate to his beloved son in Christ. And although we only heard verses 14 to 19 read to us, the reflections that I share will draw on some other parts of chapter 2. So it will be great if you've got your Bibles open at pages 1130 and 1131. If we recap and go back to chapter 1 very briefly, we learned from that that Paul had some serious concerns over how some people in the Christian church at Ephesus were exercising their leadership and teaching ministries with all sorts of unhelpful and undesirable effects and outcomes. Remember, this is a church which Paul helped to establish on one of his earlier missionary journeys in that region. And he gave Timothy a key leadership role in its ongoing growth and development. The role was to preach the gospel of Christ and to nurture faithful disciples of Jesus. So it sort of has some echoes for me arriving here and for Matthew coming to join the leadership team in January. No pressure, eh? But we don't do it alone. It's a shared leadership, and we do it with the help of God's Holy Spirit. And so Paul must have been greatly saddened to hear how some in the church are now teaching some things which run counter to the truth that he and Timothy received from God. Paul refers to this as false teaching, and he blames false teachers for the problems that the church is facing. We know relatively little about the detail of the types of false teaching to which Paul was referring, except on one point of doctrine, 
which was regarding the resurrection. But even that is slightly unclear to modern minds. Nevertheless, biblical scholars today generally believe that the false teaching that Paul was so concerned about had its roots in a mix and blend of Jewish and pagan ideas. And those included some ideas about keeping religious laws and the way one should behave. But whatever the detail of the false teaching of that first century, what we can be sure about is that it was leading to considerable discussion, confusion, and misunderstanding within the congregation. And the false teachers in question appeared to have enjoyed endless debates and arguments about the issues, perhaps through the sermons, or maybe in their small groups, but certainly without due consideration for the theological implications and the pastoral impact, not just of their teaching and what they were saying, but of their behavior, their conduct, the way that they were going about this. So the main thrust of Paul's advice to Timothy here is that Timothy should avoid getting involved in unhelpful debates, wrangling over words, as some translations have it, quarreling about what words mean or what they don't mean. But more than that, Timothy was advising Timothy to warn others not to behave like that because of the disastrous impact that it can have on the faith of believers and also on the wider community. Paul doesn't just warn Timothy against doing something. He gives Timothy a strategy for dealing with this and avoiding this uh, pitfall, if you like. Paul offers Timothy a powerful antidote to correct the corrosive and harmful effect of false teaching. And how does he do it? Well, he pulls it back. The focus is pulled back in this chapter to the person, not the idea or the theory or the doctrine, but to the person who stands at the heart of the Christian message, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the word on whom they should be focusing. Jesus Christ is the living word of God. And Paul's primary focus is always the relational gospel. In other words, the reality of God's saving mercy through Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection to new life. Salvation, Paul stresses, is first and foremost God's initiative. It's not something achieved through human efforts at keeping the religious law or through human understanding of doctrine or church practice. And the Christian hope and trust in a future, as well as a present life with God, is safe and secure, not a matter for endless speculation and debate. And as I reflected on this passage and on the challenges that Timothy was facing within his church congregation, and the words of wisdom that Paul was trying to pass on to him. It occurred to me that throughout history, throughout the history of the Christian church in particular, there have been times when people risked being distracted by debates over questions or issues 
that are not necessarily core to the gospel or to the growth of faith. And there have probably always been foolish and stupid arguments, Paul's words, which have in turn produced quarrels among God's people. If we look back to history, some of the ancient debates among church leaders that once took place are those which we might find rather trivial today, even ridiculous, such as how many angels can sit on a pinhead, or did Jesus really have possessions of his own? Other hot topics for debates down the centuries have included questions over whether Jesus was really both man and God. Or whether the Holy Spirit has the same status as God the Father and Jesus Christ. Or what the bread and wine of the Eucharist or the communion or the Lord's Supper actually represent. And we know that some of these debates led on to painful and damaging divisions in Christ's church at different points in history. But I believe even in those, God's redeeming power was always somehow at work in the midst of the quarrels over matters of meaning and interpretation. And it is through his Holy Spirit that God has always sought to bring to his people a deeper and broader understanding of aspects of Christian faith and truth. And though we don't always get it right, and we don't always agree, we are nonetheless his people. Maybe one of the most remarkable things about a local ecumenical partnership, such as the one here at Camborne, is precisely the way in which we seem able to hold differing understandings and interpretations of aspects of our Christian faith and yet at the same time hold together in the body of Christ. And here are some examples of what I mean. Words like baptism, worship, communion, heaven, origins of life, there are other things that we could add. But all of these words touch upon important areas of Christian doctrine or belief, as well as on the way churches live and order themselves. And we could no doubt have an extensive debate about how we understand some of these words and the differing perspectives that we hold on them. Let's focus on just a couple by way of illustration. The two photos on the left of the screen show how differing perspectives on the act and meaning of baptism can be expressed and held in balance by a family of Christians. You probably know the person in the top photo. I don't, but I have no doubt that some of you do. Might even be you. We could have added other photos of baptism Baptism by full immersion in a baptistry, or baptism in a river, or a lake, or a local swimming pool, as happens in some churches. The two photos on the right of your screen reflect differing approaches and understandings regarding the communion service. Some traditions will appreciate receiving from a common cup, 
containing fermented wine, while others will find meaning and value in sharing from a tray of small glasses containing grape juice. And then, of course, there's the interesting question of what should happen to the leftovers. And in one tradition, any remaining bread and wine may be consumed by the priest, while in another, these items are returned to creation with the help of the birds. We can certainly have a discussion about the meaning of certain actions and about different understandings of words and what they reflect. And of course, we can learn much of interest from one another. But Paul is wise in cautioning us to avoid allowing our discussions to degenerate into debate that becomes wrangling and quarreling over words. For if this does happen, there is a significant risk that the faith of believers will be damaged and the witness of the Christian church will become less effective. And for my part, speaking as an Anglican, I felt this is exactly what happened last November when the Church of England's General Synod failed to find a godly outcome in their debate over whether women should be ordained as bishops. However important, however complex the issue was, however deeply felt the beliefs on all sides, it was the wrangling and the quarrelling over words which the wider world found so off-putting. My colleagues at work could not understand it, and I believe the gospel message suffered as a result. Paul's letters to the early churches make it very clear that for him the gospel is everything. Preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death and resurrection took priority for Paul over all other questions and debates. For him, the faithful presentation of the gospel message trumps debates about questions of religious doctrine or church order. We know from his letters that Paul was an enthusiastic and highly skilled debater. He could have had a field day. He was so good at it. But he also knew well that debate and argument can so easily become a distraction and threaten the spread and growth of Christian faith. And what Paul really wanted to see in the church at Ephesus was loyalty to the gospel. The loyalty to the gospel that he had shared with them in the early years and alongside that loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ as the leader of the church, the head of the body. And here at Camborne Church, given the diversity of church traditions and denominational understandings that are represented amongst us, I do wonder whether God hasn't called Camborne to a unique opportunity in modelling for the wider church and the wider world precisely the sort of loyalty to the gospel and to Christ that Paul had in mind. As I prepared these reflections on Paul's second letter to Timothy, 
I was very struck by how much of what Paul says throughout chapter 2 finds an echo in the core values that Camborne Church has been able to articulate for itself in recent years. Values which are captured and expressed through everyday words that really need little discussion or debate. Just as for Paul, the gospel is not only the point of departure, but also the thread that links all the other values together. And if you look closely, you'll see that in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul makes it clear that it is Jesus Christ raised from the dead who stands at the heart of that gospel message. In verse 15, he speaks of transparency and integrity in our witnessing to God's truth, perhaps echoing the openness that Camborne Church is committed to, so that we are a place where questions of life and faith can be explored honestly. In verses 20 and 21, Paul speaks of service, a reference to being willing and ready for service at the hands of the master. And in verse 7, Paul encourages Timothy to reflect on the advice that he has received from Paul and to allow God's insights through the Holy Spirit to guide him. Some might call this prayer. And it testifies to the importance of prayer in our individual and our corporate life. And then in verses 24 and 5, Paul speaks of the manner in which we are to engage with one another and with the wider world, with gentleness and respect, especially on those issues where there may be ignorance or disagreement or opposition. And the final verses of chapter 2 also speak of the need for faith, peace, and love as the foundation for all that we can think and say and do. For ultimately, it is only God's love in us and through us that can change people and situations. Paul knew this to be true for Timothy and for the situation in the church at Ephesus. And it remains just as true for us here today in our church and community at Campbell. Amen. <laughs>